0: Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've been thinking a lot lately about civility. Of course, basic politeness and exercising good manners is essential. But I think civility, real civility, goes deeper. It means to choose our words carefully and thoughtfully in non-hurtful ways. It means to be respectful of how another person sees the world even when we heartily disagree. And to maintain a sense of humility because as a wise friend of mine used to say, we could always be wrong. These are lofty goals, which I practice imperfectly, of course, but that's the tone we strive for in these programs. Thank you for listening. This Humankind special, The Christmas Truce, is produced in association with WGBH
1: Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. I find it hard to believe because it sounds so impossible, but it was possible at that time and the preponderance of letters and diary entries and so on made it clear that this really did happen and it happened on a grand scale.
0: Against military orders in World War I, opposing soldiers established a fragile peace. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. With its ultimate death toll in the tens of millions, the First World War was unmistakably one of the bleakest chapters in all of human history. And yet in 1914, in the darkness of a bitter December night, somehow a beam of light shone through. It occurred amid battlefield corpses and the miserable waterlogged trenches of Flanders, Belgium, 75 miles north of France, where Allied troops tried to repel the invading Germans. The story, told in the voice of a homesick British soldier, was memorialized in Christmas in the Trenches, a Grammy-nominated folk song by John McCutcheon.
2: It was the first Christmas of what was then called the Great War, and people were convinced that it was going to be over by Christmas. We'd all be home by Christmas. To Belgium and
3: to Flanders, to Germany to hear. I fought for king and country I love dear. It was Christmas in the trenches, where the frost so bitter hung the frozen fields of france were still no christmas song was sung our families back in england were toasting us that day Their brave and glorious lads so far away
2: here I'm they were christmas eve and they're, and they're not with their families they're in some godforsaken muddy field with a bunch of smelly men and they, more than anything, want to have a Christmas like they've always had. They want to be surrounded by loved ones. So I think there, there was a real vulnerability there. It's Christmas Eve, and there's a sense that things stop. You know, you're not working. Even if you don't go to church, you go to church probably – you have saved all year for this, you know, you've made things, you've bought things, you're gonna eat something special the next day, you have all this folklore connected and, and, and tradition with this event, and none of it is in evidence. And you add to that, for those to whom spirituality mattered, there was a holiness about this night. And even if you weren't religious, you understood that there was something special about
3: this right here.
0: Kind of reverence.
3: Yeah. I was lying with my messmate on the cold and rocky ground. When across the lines of battle came a most peculiar sound. Says, I now listen up, me boys, each soldier strained to hear one young German voice sang out so clear, he's singing bloody well, you know, my partner says to me, soon one by one, each German voice joined in in harmony, the cannons rested silent, the gas clouds rolled no more, as Christmas brought us respite from the
2: What was it about this, this, this night, this horrible, cold, wet night that made this soldier start to sing and then his mates started singing with him and then suddenly these other people who were not his mates across a muddy field started singing back. And it was, um, it was a glee club <laughs> competition in some ways. And and you imagine some some men could sing and some couldn't hold a tune to save their lives, but they all joined in.
3: Stille Nacht, eine Nacht, eine Nacht.
2: They hit on this common song, the song that has sunk deep roots into each culture. And they realized that they're doing this together, and it all collapsed then. Then there was no holding back. All the things that made this most inhumane situation absolutely human. And that's irresistible. It's... You can't turn your back on that with without making a conscious decision to do it. And
0: everything was set up for this to happen. It was meant to happen. Fraternizing with the enemy is regarded as a serious military offense. Combatants on all sides risked court-martial when they laid down their arms and began a tentative dance to celebrate Christmas together. And no one could be sure that their now-friendly enemies were not laying a trap but many of the soldiers were just teenagers, shivering and lonely. We traded chocolates, cigarettes, and photographs from home.
3: These sons and fathers far away from families of their own. Young Sanders played his squeeze box and they had a violin. This curious and unlikely band of men. Merry Christmas. Handgranate and Weihnachtsbaum, yeah? Handgranate and Weihnachtsbaum. Wunderbar.
0: The humanity of this true event has been dramatized in three different movie adaptations of The Christmas Truce. Oh, What a Lovely War, A Midnight Clear, and the French film Joyeux Noël, as well as John McCutcheon's stirring folk song Christmas in the Trenches. But the historical facts were most reliably established in the book Silent Night, based on archival research by longtime Pennsylvania State University historian Stanley Weintraub.
1: Many of the Germans had actually worked in England. They worked as... uh, as barbers, they they worked as uh, uh, wagon drivers and so on, uh, and they knew English. And they were called back to Germany when the war began. Uh, So even if the English didn't know much German, the Germans knew a great deal of English. Although combat had left
0: hundreds of thousands killed, wounded, or missing between the Great War's start in August 1914 and that first Christmas, non-hostile interaction among opposing troops was known to occur. No man's land, the space between trenches occupied by different armies, was often shorter than a football field, a proximity which allowed for direct contact.
1: Because they were so close... Uh, They could shout to each other. They could call each other names. Uh, They even got to know the first names of troops across the way. On one occasion, the Germans uh, called out, we're uh, we're having a party for uh, our commanding officer. Uh, If you stop firing during the party, we'll send you over a cake. And they sent over a cake. Uh, This is the kind of fraternization uh, that goes on when the Enemies are close by, and when the enemies culturally are akin to you. Historian Stanley Weintraub says one of the
0: few things most World War I combatants could agree on was the centrality of Christmas. For Germans, the tradition of Christmas trees celebrated in the Carol O. Tannenbaum carried deep sentimental importance. They were heartened to receive holiday shipments of small trees, which they sometimes perched atop
1: ammunition boxes in the trenches. When the Germans uh, began to actually light the candles on their little trees, uh, the British wondered what it was, what was going on. Uh, And at a distance of 75 or 100 yards, they weren't sure. some of them crept closer through the mud to see what was going on and uh, discovered that the Germans were lighting their Christmas trees. Uh, the Germans, realizing that there were troops uh, approaching them, crawled out too, uh, and the troops met each other. Uh, uh, This happened in many places along the front lines, especially in Flanders. The British uh, did not have trees, but they had something else uh, that they could show the Germans. Uh, I'm holding in my hand a a brass box uh, that says Christmas 1914, and um, It has the head of, uh, embossed head of Princess Mary, one of the daughter of uh, King George V. The British uh, actually uh, sent over to the front lines uh, hundreds of thousands of these brass boxes. Uh, Some of them were filled with candy. uh, Some of them had uh, tobacco. uh, And uh, there was a campaign to get these uh, to the troops. Uh, When the Germans discovered that the British were doing this, uh, they quickly began to fabricate wooden boxes uh, with sausages and cigars and so on. Uh, and both sides, it seemed, um, as they crawled out to meet each other, had things to trade. And when they got together uh, in uh, No Man's Land on Christmas Eve, uh, they were not only in mucky territory, uh, but there were shell holes and there were bodies. And uh, they uh, began to think in terms of burying the dead, Uh, that if they bury the dead, they might be able to get together the next day Uh, and not only do that, uh, but perhaps trade gifts. And some of them said, and play football, Uh, football meaning our uh, soccer. Uh, And they did. And this was one of the things that, uh, when I was working on the earlier book on the armistice, had been considered absolutely absurd. They couldn't possibly have played football in such circumstances uh, and in such terrain. And yet I found in the Imperial War Museum and in German documents, uh, war diaries, that is official documents, the daily reports, that not only talked about the football games, but gave the scores. And
3: one by one on either side Walked into no man's land With neither gun nor bayonet we met there hand to hand. We shared some secret brandy and wished each other well. And in a flare lit soccer game,
0: we gave them hell. In Christmas 1914, there were reports of a spontaneous, unauthorized ceasefire by beleaguered soldiers along many points of the Western Front. Some worried that fraternization among enemies had the potential to undermine military discipline, as hostility is hard to maintain if you come to see your opponent as just another human being like yourself. And field officers watched the scene with growing unease. Historian Stanley Weintraub.
1: This is a a British officer writing. Uh, uh, More Germans had emerged between the lines, and he wrote, Things were getting a bit thick. My men were getting a bit excited, so I climbed over the parapet and shouted my best German for the opposing captain to appear. We met and formally saluted. He introduced himself as Count Something or Other and seemed a very decent fellow. I said, my orders are to keep my men in the trenches and allow no armistice. Don't you think it is dangerous, all of your men running about in the open like this? Someone may open fire. He called out an order, and all his men went back to their parapet leaving me and the five German officers and a barrel of beer in the middle of no man's land. He said, you better take the beer. We have lots. So I called up two men to bring the barrel to our side. I didn't like to take their beer without giving something in exchange, and suddenly I had a brainwave. We had lots of plum puddings, so I sent for one and formally presented it to him in exchange for the beer. He then called out, waiter, and a German private whipped out six glasses and two bottles of beer, and with much bowing and saluting, we solemnly drank it, and cheers from both sides. Then we all formally saluted and returned to our lines.
0: We're exploring an extraordinary moment of world history, the unapproved Christmas truce among sworn enemies during World War I. You're listening to a Humankind Special. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this event and to obtain an audio copy of The Christmas Truce, please visit humanmedia.org. The the spur-of-the-moment Christmas ceasefires of World War I proved a short-lived deviation from the bloodbath of the Great War. Moments of truce lasted in some places just a day, elsewhere till New Year's at latest. Then the shooting war resumed. But it took a while for commanders to notice the temporary outbreak of peace. Stanley Weintraub, author of Silent Night
1: senior officers seldom ventured toward the front lines. I found the case of only one general uh, who actually went out to the front lines to see what was going on. So that meant that the troops could do pretty much what they wanted. Uh, But when reports came back to the uh, fancy chateaus in the rear where the generals um, uh, were stationed, uh, they complained about it and they issued orders that this had to stop. And it stopped as soon as they sent replacements out Uh, to uh, take the places of the troops that had fraternized. Uh, So in some cases, it took close to New Year's Day. Uh, And uh, in many places where the truce was about to end and the troops that had fraternized were to leave, uh, they got together, both sides got together, and shook hands and traded gifts. Uh, In one case, they traded gloves and scarves uh, and... Uh, an officer, usually a young one, like a lieutenant or a captain, uh, would say, uh, we'll have to begin the war again, and we'll fire in the air. And once we fire in the air, you know that our truce has to be over. And uh, they did that in a number of places. They, uh, they said they shot at the sky. It gives you some idea as to uh, how the troops really did not want to fight at all. They were there to fight, and they wanted to go home. Uh, The important thing was to get it over with and go home. And it is quite possible uh, that if this had spread further, that they would have gone home a lot sooner, and the war would have ended as a result of the spontaneous truce. Governments wanted the war fought. Uh, Governments knew that if the war would end, they might lose their place in the regime. They might lose their power. Uh, They might lose their place in society. They didn't want that. Uh, They wanted the war to continue until it ended in some way that was favorable to their side. And so the machinery of organized
0: violence continued humming. Now, more than a century after the conflict began, it's hard for us to fathom what a body blow this first technologized war dealt to humanity. Its consequences directly set up the conditions that led to World War II, whose destructive effects we still feel in so many ways to this day. That moment of respite and grace that descended at Christmas time, 1914 would quickly
1: dissolve into almost four more years of bloodshed. The war ground on millions of dead. I think the total number of dead, civilian and soldier, uh, on both the eastern and western fronts uh, approached something like 60 million by the end of the war. It's uh, hardly to be believed.
3: Each Christmas comes since World War I I've learned its lessons well But the ones who call the shots Won't be among the dead and lame And on each end of the rifle We're the same
0: Folk singer John McCutcheon wrote his Beautiful Christmas in the Trenches in 1984, fully 70 years after the young soldiers took the risk of joining in the spontaneous Christmas Eve truce of World War I. His song became popular with fans, and it seemed poignant to perform it in Europe, where he subsequently toured. I was playing in
2: Denmark in 1988 at a festival, and four German men... Showed up at all my shows. It was in a small town on the German Danish border, and I played four or five places around town. Every every possible venue: uh, a church, a union hall, a school, circus marquee in the um, in the main square. And uh, these men would show up, and they'd be late because they were old, uh, and usually couldn't find a seat, and were the last to leave because they just moved slow. They were they were old. And um, finally, after my last show, I went out of my way to track them down and I said, who are you? And these were four men who uh, were living together. they had grown up together, uh, joined the Kaiser's army together. They claimed they were all underage um, and had been involved in the Christmas Eve truce. And said, we now live in a veteran's home in Berlin, and we try to tell our stories, but the people there, you know, the orderlies and the nurses, and they're nice to us, but you can tell they think we're crazy.
0: So what did you learn from these guys?
2: Well, in one way, it was a validation. I never imagined I would actually meet someone. I mean, the the clock was working against me.
0: So were these the first eyewitnesses you had met? Yes, the only
2: eyewitnesses. That I've ever met. First of all, they thanked me remarkably enough it, for, for being able to validate their story to the younger people who, uh, who attended to them. They heard, they heard it on the radio, on German state radio, and they made the orderlies come in and listen. And one of the guys said, because we thought if, we heard, if they heard our stories coming from a young voice and a different voice, They would believe us because we had to prove to them that we weren't crazy. And I've often thought about these young kids, these teenagers who were called into duty and who for this one night were involved in one of the most courageous acts ever executed on a battlefield. And we're probably the sanest people on the planet that night that— wave that went down through the trenches where all of a sudden, oh, it's okay. There's a truce. We can go out. Like I said, they thanked me, which was the world turned upside down as far as I was concerned.
0: Is that a humbling moment? It was
2: an astonishing moment. I mean, I, I, was, I was humbled later when I thought I was just, I had never imagined I would ever meet anybody who was a, a part of this. And I never imagined that the people that I write about, and I write a lot about stories that I see in the newspaper that I feel like I'm performing some rescue operation on, you know, plucking them from the inevitable death of the 15-minute news cycle, to never be heard again unless someone takes the time to write a song about it or write a play
3: about it or write a book about it soon daylight stole upon us and france was france once more with sad farewells we each began to settle back to war but the question haunted every heart that lived that wondrous night whose family have i fixed within my sights
2: you went back and you thought i'm not just killing an individual I'm killing a family here I'm taking aim at at a bunch of human beings this is not just some two-legged mammal over there this is this is someone who has connections and who has relationships and who lots of worlds will come crumbling down and it's 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 one of the realities of war uh, it, it becomes romanticized it becomes trivialized but um, you know, uh, because of this song, I've gotten to work with lots of veterans groups, and, and which is a rare opportunity for someone who's not a veteran. And there are things that I've learned from these men and women that I could have never learned. Uh, you know, I was raised with comic books and G.I. Joes and, and, and B-movies. And kids today are growing up with those same things in ad video games and it all is about a cartoonish representation of the grit of, of what actually goes on out there and what you are asked to do and what you live through and bring home with you. I had a, a, a fellow about my age come up to me after a show and veterans frequently come up and identify themselves and. This is, the song is is a great favorite among veterans. Um, And this fellow said, I was in Nam and I got separated from my platoon. I was out on patrol. And um, I ran into a VC who had been separated from his patrol. And we sat there for this confused moment both pointing guns at one another. And then it seemed as though we both realized, okay, well, we're just two more bodies in the jungle then. And through sign language and broken English, mostly on the Vietnamese soldiers' part, they you know, were able to cobble together some, what food do you have? Do you have any cigarettes? And so on. And this guy, anyway, realized that these were just two humans doing someone else's bidding. And when they were confronted, stripped of all the, the slogans and, and the reinforcements, when two men were just out there pointing guns at one another, the folly of that, that pretense struck them enough that they said, well, we just gotta survive.
0: Two men who didn't know each other.
2: Exactly, and knew nothing about one another Uh, except what they had been told.
0: So back in December 1914, a British brigadier general, G.T. Forestier Walker, issued a direct order prohibiting fraternization, because he said it discourages initiative in commanders and destroys the offensive spirit in all ranks. But his instruction failed to prevent the truce that would shortly follow at Christmas. There will be monuments and parades and
2: holidays for the rest of time honoring veterans and soldiers and this is something equally as important this was one of the most courageous acts ever to be
0: executed on a battlefield and i want to witness that folk singer john mccutcheon composer and performer of christmas in the trenches listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Jane Pippick. Editorial assistance from Mark Kilstein, Ken Rogers, and Kathy Graham. Webmaster, Brian K. Johnson. Special gratitude to Paul Ingalls, series producer of Peace Talks Radio. Thanks also to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Marblehead, Massachusetts, to Bond Collard, and to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Short Media.
2: You can hear more episodes of our series at
0: humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, The Christmas Truce, is Humankind Program number 217.
2: The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.